Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. In today's episode of The 40 Minute Mentor, I had the pleasure of interviewing fellow podcast host and serial entrepreneur, Dan Murray-Serta. Dan is co-founder of Height, the holistic brand for the brain, and also the host of the UK's number one business podcast, Secret Leaders, which happens to be one of my personal favourites. Despite initially wanting to be a football coach, he started his career in the world of advertising before co-founding his first business at the age of 24. Since then, Dan has been running his own businesses for the last seven years and has led to him winning multiple awards, including being named Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2015, off the back of his success with his previous startup, Gravel. Over the course of our chat, we covered a number of topics, including Dan's candid insights into the true life of an entrepreneur, how the idea for Heights was born, and how the team leveraged high-profile expert opinions from the likes of Stephen Fry to help rapidly grow their community, plus he reveals who the most inspiring person is that he's had on Secret Leaders. It was a real pleasure interviewing a podcast legend like Dan, who is such an honest and gregarious entrepreneur. I really enjoyed hearing his reflections on the ups and downs he's faced and more about his ambitions for the future. So if you're currently thinking about taking the leap and starting out on your own, or if you're a Secret Leaders fan, keen to hear more about the man behind the mic, then you definitely want to listen to this episode. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and please enjoy my conversation with the brilliant Dan Murray-Serta. Dan, thank you very much for joining us on the 40 Minute Mentor today. Um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to not be with you personally, but virtually. And I thought we could kick this off as we always like to with a 30 second overview of your CV, if that's okay. Yes, 30 second overview. My God, I usually ramble and I've already wasted about 10 <laughs> seconds just telling you that I ramble. So I actually started in advertising. I worked in advertising for about six years. So from, well, actually, no, sorry, I'm going re, to rewrite my history because at 13 <laughs> was my first job and I went to work as a football coach. I was learning football coaching and I got my FA badges and I thought that's what I wanted to do. But my father ran a fashion manufacturing business. So I went to work in the warehouse in Tottenham packing, you know, big, heavy things and learning to drive a forklift truck and all sorts of things in my, in my formative years. And that's what meant I never really wanted to go into fashion. So I ended up going into advertising. I became an entrepreneur at about 24 when I left my advertising agency with the co-founder of that one and started one with him. It only went for about a year before I realized we weren't right, the right partners. My oldest friend from school, Joel, who I've always been very close to, but very different from, we were ruminating on ideas and we've done three different businesses together now. So, you know, we've got lots of scars and experiences, but, you know, I've been essentially running my own businesses since um, I was 24. 24 on and off. The first one, you know, failed and I had to go back into work. So, you know, after that, it was, tw it was 26. But, you know, that's when I got the bug, I would say. Fantastic. Well, lots to, to explore over the course of this conversation. Uh, you clearly 
were bitten by that entrepreneurial bug fairly on in your life. So was that always a dream to, to be your own boss? You know, I, I, I watched your TEDx talk, which was very inspiring, very touching, actually. And clearly your dad had a huge influence on, on you. But that was, was that always something you, you thought you wanted to be? Apart from obviously a footballer. <laughs> football yeah, coach. yeah, no, I mean, I definitely wasn't good enough to be a footballer. That's why I was interested <laughs> in the coaching. No, to be honest, I, I, I didn't have a, a desire to be an entrepreneur. I think the experience of growing up in, in, a, in a family where your, my father was an entrepreneur, he ran the same business, you know, as you know, because he watched the talk. He was 16 when he started that and ran it all the way through till he passed away. He, you know, went through different recessions, Black Monday, like all of the different things. Um, wasn't easy, had two heart attacks, really poor health, massive amount of stress. You know, we lost our home, like all this stuff. None of that makes none of that makes you want to be an entrepreneur when you're growing no. up. So I didn't have any desire whatsoever to live lifestyle like my father's. So it is a surprise to me because a lot of people profess to wanting to be an entrepreneur and feeling like that's what they want to do. And I never had that. Mine more came from opportunities. And, you know, I don't think I ever would have taken the plunge. Um, so a lot of a lot of entrepreneurship is about confidence and fear. I don't think I ever would have had the confidence to go it alone if it wasn't for the fact that the the man that was my boss at the time his name was Nick thought I was so good at his company that he wanted to leave the company that he started like with his other directors leave it and start one with me doing something different that's a huge you know at 24 years old that's a massive sign of confidence and it's a real and 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 it's from someone who you know at the time he was 33 so more experienced than me and, and someone I felt like, you know, ultimately relevant for this could be a mentor to me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have chosen mm. to do it with a, with a peer or with someone else that didn't know what they were doing. So that's the only reason why I left and ended up doing that. That's really interesting. Yeah, and, and that it really resonates with me. My, uh, my parents are, are both teachers and priests, and I was never going to go the way of the cloth. But th- there's no real entrepreneurial nature in our family at all. Um, but sometimes just, I guess, the opportunity arises in, and you take it and you realize that was what you were meant to do. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, you had a lot of early entrepreneurial success. You, you, you know, you started a business early early on in your, your career, and then you set up Grabble, which became the number one shopping app in the UK. You won Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2015. Uh, lots of plaudits. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that business and what initially inspired you to set it up? Totally. But I think one, one thing that I, you know, I do generally miss out when I'm sharing the story, because there's only so much time people have. But you know, like I say, I left when I was 24. I worked for a year with Nick. It didn't work out from a relationship point of view. We're still friends and I still fucking love the guy, but wasn't a good business partner for me because we're too similar. Um, right. both interested in sales and marketing and frankly like you can't like one of you has to do like strategy and finance and you know you have to yeah. have some balance you know it failed I went back to work for the company that we'd left it was you know a humbling experience obviously mm. even at that age and then you know I did two other businesses with Joel um, one completely flopped and was like a painful financial disaster and one did really well, really quickly, which was literally a group buying site. And it was like a Groupon for students, but all with digital products. So like a good example is we launched with a, a product that went completely viral, which was a free five pound takeaway for everyone that signed up with Hungry House. Everyone that signed up on our website, everyone got a free five pound takeaway with Hungry House, unlimited redemptions. And we got paid one pound 50 every time someone redeemed it. So wow. we were like printing cash on day yeah. one. And it was a brilliant, brilliant start. And we used an outsourced third-party software solution in the Ukraine. So we had no employees and it was just growing and really good for six months, but it was a customer service nightmare. We fucking hated the business, didn't like the industry. (laughs) 
and then got to a point where we're like, we have to start hiring people and maybe even raise money and do all this stuff. And we're like, mm, I don't want to do this business. It's not good. Mm. So instead we pocketed the money we made and we put it into starting something we did want. So we both put 25 grand into Gravel, which was the idea that came out. But, you know, I always say this to people, like technically speaking, you know, it really depends on your outlook. You know, is they're not failures, but they're not not failures. You know, if you class a failure as something that didn't succeed, then I already had three failures by the time I started Gravel. And the thing that you learn in entrepreneurship is, you know, there's a lot of wiping the dust off and reflecting mm. and figuring out how you'll do something differently next time. So from the outside in, Gravel very much looks like the first business I ever ran and that it went surprisingly well until it didn't. But actually, it's not really true. But... It was definitely the first ambitious business that yeah. I decided to start. And we started it for all the wrong reasons. You know, the reason we started it was because Joel, who's my, you know, like I said, my best friend, my business partner, you know, he is the type of guy that reads trend reports and, you know, lots of tech crunch and really interested in entrepreneurship much so, more so than me. He was at PwC and absolutely desperate to, to leave and do something really ambitious. And the opportunity with Gravel was essentially, it's a weird one to say, like we literally looked at people raising lots of money in the Silicon Valley for fuck all, technology looking really interesting and it looking like the fashion industry was going to change. And even though I was like, I'm not going into the fashion industry, I told my dad a million times I wouldn't do it. There's no way. That was where the opportunity lay. And so funnily enough, we ended up meeting like our first investor, who was a guy called Rob Durkin that ran a company who supplied all the technology for the affiliate feeds that power loads of different fashion retailers. So as it's a tech business, we needed to figure out how we would make a tech platform like this work. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind Gravel was sort of ASOS meets Pinterest. It, it sounds confusing and that's because it was, right? So we spent a year raising some money, getting an office in a Regis in, in Moorgate. It was a really exciting time, you know, hiring freelance developers, spending way too much money. I mean, talk about burn. We were like, you know, we would raise about 10 grand in a month and have it spent by the end of the month and need to be raising another 10 grand. I mean, wow. you know, the concept of raising 150K in one go and then 300 in one go was new to us. We didn't know any investors and we didn't know a single person in the industry. So it was like so scrappy. I mean, one Christmas, like yeah. I had to borrow 10 grand from my mum to keep us going that Christmas, which was wow. quite, quite scary. But, you know, we managed to make it through. Anyway, after a year... We had about eight people and we still didn't know what we were doing. As in, we still didn't, you couldn't clearly communicate what Gravel was. We had about 800 users. We'd spent about £250,000 building this fucking giant monstrosity of a website with very clever technology, by the way, but irrelevant sure. because it was complicated. So we had this really sophisticated back end that would enable us essentially to merchandise the internet. So we were able, we created something called a grab button like Pinterest. If you've ever used Pinterest, yeah. it enabled us yeah. to click on any product on any fashion product on the internet, click it and bring it into our website with all the mm -hmm. metadata. So this is a, you know, a floral dress from, you know, Ted Baker and it costs this much and this you know, and, and everything. And then it would create a script that would essentially give an user an alert when it went on sale. So you could do that like across the whole entire internet. So it was very cool, but very complicated to communicate what that is. Anyway, after a year, we had no money. It was completely failing. And Joel, to his credit, was like, we need to do something completely different. This isn't working. Um, if we try and raise money off this, we've got no users. We've got no story. So it's not going to happen. Mm. So instead, I say that we completely pivot and we look at mobile. Now, at this point, this was sort of 2014, I think. 
mobile fashion was not a thing. Yeah. And, you know, mobile shopping was not a thing. So putting something together was really not a thing, but Tinder had just come out. And so we decided to copy the UX of Tinder. And within about three weeks, we put together essentially a prototype. Bear in mind, we fortunately had the sophisticated back end. So yeah. putting a front end on it on mobile was like a bit simpler, right? There's nothing to build in the back, just make it look pretty in the front. And we put together this app. I basically researched how to go viral on Twitter, executed it to perfection. It's like a playbook, which, you know, is relevant in 2014 and it's not so easy now. But long story short, you know, we were sitting there. I mean, we always remember these moments, right? They're big moments. We were sitting there, no money in the bank, no idea what happened. We had 10 grand left. So we basically spent it all on this Twitter campaign. And Sunday night, we had Polish web developers. And this was the fun part. The bit I miss most about Gravel, interestingly, was we had an awesome time going to Poland all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, we weren't <laughs> like, oh, let's, yeah, we weren't like, let's just be those guys who have Polish developers. We were like, let's set up a dev office in Poland and go there, you know, like literally awesome. go there every month for like two, three days. We had so much fun. And so the good news is we built a relationship with these people personally. Sure. And it was Sunday night, it was 10 o'clock. And basically this campaign went completely viral, absolutely worked. And we shot Incredible. up to number one in the app store out of wow. nowhere. And um, the servers obviously went down because we weren't expecting this to happen. And we ended up having <laughs> to call Simon, who was our, basically like sorted out our servers at like 10 o'clock. So therefore 11 in Poland. And like basically wake him up on a Sunday night being like, got to fucking fire up more servers. <laughs> We're so sorry, all this stuff. And, you know, fortunately, because he was someone that we'd personally connected with, he got out yeah. of bed and did it. And by the next morning, you know, we'd done something like, uh, I think it was at 18, 19,000 downloads in a night. Incredible. Um, from a completely new app. We were what a turnaround. It was amazing. And so we literally went out with this story of like, we're reinventing fashion. It was nicknamed Tinder of fashion. We got on the Daily Mail, the Mail Online. Um, you know, you've made it when you make the exactly. Mail Online. And they, they called us the Tinder of fashion. The, the, the page is, is this the Tinder of fashion? And that got another 10,000 downloads, literally just off that one, one thing in one day. And we were able to raise money quickly off the back of that. Yeah. And so, you know, it was the first time I obviously appreciate like there's two types of stories you can tell investors, obviously. One is like the data and the things you've done. And the second is the promise of the story. And at different times, mm. the right thing works, but you can't go back with the promise of the story twice. Yeah. Like yeah. one yeah. time it's the story and one time it's the execution. And if the execution has failed, then mm -hmm. you've got to fucking dig deep and think about what you're going to do. And we literally at that moment, we had two parts. One was go back and ask for more money or find more investors and carry on doing what we're doing, which wasn't working, but it was a totally plausible thing and what a lot of people do. Or throw everything that we just worked on for the last year away, which is hard, right? Because that's 250,000 yeah. pounds of other people's money that you're essentially saying I'm ditching because it hasn't worked. But we're going to cool. spend the last of our money doing something completely new as a last ditch. And for that month, that risk, and for it to work was one of the best feelings I've ever emotionally felt. And so, you know, that was a really interesting lesson to us about not being stubborn. Yeah, it's definitely an inspiring one for any entrepreneurs out there about just kind of backing yourselves and, and, and not being afraid of that sort of bold pivot. And clearly, I mean, it literally exploded and you had some incredible times, but you've, you've been very honest sort of about your journey there and it wasn't all plain sailing. So can you tell our listeners a, a bit about some of those challenges that you, you came and what those the biggest learnings were from that process. Yeah, so I've had loads of fantastic learnings throughout Gravel. So the most important lesson, uh, which is hilarious to share with anyone, is that uh, like, margin is everything. 
So my big joke to people that people really enjoy, so I'll share it here, which is, you know, everyone that always says, well, you know, doing a business is much better than going to business school. I'm like, well, at business school, they teach you about margin. So you don't have to, you know, spend, <laughs> spend your whole business figuring that out afterwards. But yeah, we had a very low margin at Gravel with a lot of growth. And so to give you some context, um, over a four-year journey with Gravel um, at our peak, we had 1.2 million monthly active users. We had over 8 million pounds in revenue and sales going through the app, 45 people and we couldn't afford to pay people's bills. So that gives you an idea of how fundamentally flawed the business model was. The signs were all there really early, mm -hmm. and the signs were there about a year and a half before that growth, because ultimately there was a fork in the road again, where we knew that we were growing fast and that we had a good product and a good brand that people were engaging with and a really good story. We got in everywhere all the time talking about the future of fashion, the future of mobile shopping. Um, however, the reality is the... Um, the margin in, in, in this game was, you know, 10% at best. But the problem is the thing that we did really well at Gravel was if you purchase something in Gravel, we basically concierged purchased it for you. So you right. could find something in Gravel that you wanted, click buy, it's done, you pay us, but we go and pay the retailer on your behalf, get it shipped, do all the customer service for you, etc. And we set up loads of tech for that. The thing that fucked us up, to be honest, was lots of returns. So for returns, we're on the hook and there's no real transparency about whether people really are returning or they're stealing or whatever. Yeah. If you don't figure that stuff out at 100,000, uh, when you get to a million, it can totally implode you, which is exactly what did happen to us. Um, but in the meantime, whilst we're telling the story to investors, they're telling us to grow, 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 because you have to appreciate on the other side, you know, we were right there neck and neck with Depop at the time in terms of like the two apps that people are really downloading wow. and engaging with that are like reinventing the way people shop were totally different so we weren't competitors but you know we were doing thirty thousand new users every single week so we were like like growing really rapidly and we were just told to continue doing that so the problem with all of that stuff is you listen you know as young entrepreneurs you listen mm. to your investors and it seems like good advice but it wasn't the right advice the right advice was to sort out the business model before we scale further so that inevitably caused a humongous problem for us. Yeah. Um, we never managed to fix it. We realized that we had really good technology that we were using to power Gravel and we'd spent years building it. So we started to explore this idea of, you know, a little bit like games companies create a game and then they become a game studio and they have a variety yeah. of hits, some flops, some hits. And like the hit is always the one that saves the company. So, you know, we started exploring, you know, how, how could we do that as well? And so we had an app called popcorn that we launched which went completely viral as well so that had millions of downloads it was a movie trailers app just really beautiful ux and and design but again no real business model that was more because we weren't expecting it to do so well mm. we never even created a social media account for it it just went no completely viral on its own volition and um, got featured by apple in every single country in the world and there was no you know, it was all digital. There was no like shipping a product to someone. You were, if you watched a trailer and then you bought it, it would affiliate you through to Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever. So we would get an affiliate. So it was a crappy business model there, but another good example of like our ability to execute on, on product and games. In the end, we looked like really holistically. And I think this is a good way to do it personally. The space we were in was complicated because... If you look really high level, there's two industries we were trying to sort of disrupt at the same time. One is publishing, aka where people go to find out the information, mm. the things they want to buy. And the other is what they want to buy and buying it. 
And putting those two things together in mobile is quite complicated because there's a lot of incumbent ways that things work. Retail has its model, as does brand, as does publishing. And trying to merge all those three things together with a beautiful look and feel was great for customers, but bad for business. In the end, you know, there were a couple of companies in America that were further along the line than us. So, you know, there was a company called Spring that had raised $25 million. There was a company called Keep that had raised $55 million. And both of them had failed trying to do what we did. So we looked at it and you're like, you know, if you can't solve this with $50 million, how are you going to solve it in the UK when money is just unbelievably hard to raise? We'd raised four and a half million pounds by this point. You know, it just doesn't seem practical. So we had a million pounds left in the bank account um, at the time. And this is like one of the most unusual circumstances. And I'm not sure if you know this part or not, but we had a million pound left in the bank account. I went back to our investors and said, you know, this isn't working. As in, we've tried every which way from Sunday. We've had your experts come in, other people's experts come in. You know, we're looking at the data. We haven't spent all the money, but we've got about a year worth of runway left, realistically, with, with, with revenue and money in the bank. But the point being, it's a bit of a foregone conclusion at this time. It's like, it feels the last year has felt like death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. Um, we're willing to say that we're not smart enough to figure this out. And as of yet, no one has figured this out. You've got everyone talking about Instagram moving into shopping, which obviously they have now done. It just feels like a foregone conclusion and not a responsible use of the money. So our suggestion is that we give out what's back and shut down the company. What a brave call. I mean, a- admirable. And like, I can't imagine any investors have probably had that situation before. So and what was the reaction at the time to that? Well, yeah, it was a really uncomfortable conversation. Mm. So you know, there's two sides to this. One is, I mean, the, the amount of emotional and mental stress of going into a conversation yeah, like that, you want to be armed well. So talking about mentorship, not officially a mentor, but Michael Acton Smith, who is the founder of Calm, he went through something similar at Mind Candy. So I called him up and was like, you know, this is our situation. This is what we're going to do. Do you have any tips on how to approach it? And he was like, 100%, let me come meet you. So he came to Soho to meet Joel and I, and we all, we all spent an afternoon. And he was like, this is exactly how you present it. This is exactly what you say. Don't let them speak. Don't let them interrupt you. Ask them for the respect that you can fully explain yourself first. If they control the narrative and control the conversation, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. And it was really like great mentoring, right? Really, yeah. this is how yeah, you great do it. Advice. This is how you do it. We're taking the notes. We're practicing at night, fucking freaking out. Um, go into the board meeting the next day. And it's really, really, uh, and it's a really embarrassing conversation to have. And it's a horrible mm-hmm. one. But it was yeah. handled extremely well by the board and by the investors. They were much more compassionate than I was expecting. And the answer that they gave was, uh, we'd rather you didn't give us the money back yet. There might be another option, which is you know, if you let go of everyone and you take some time, keep the money in escrow and whatever's left after you've paid out everything, that could be pre-seed capital to start something new. Yeah. But you have to come back and pitch it, right? You have to go away for three months, yeah. do some validation. This is the date you need to come back and pitch what the new business is. And if we think it's good and we think we like the approach, then we'll use that as pre-seed capital. So this is really unusual um, and took yeah. some searching to think about whether that was a good shout or mm. not, because there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with a backstory yeah. like that. Yeah. <clears throat> but, but the other reality is on a practical cap table point of view, everyone had ordinary shares because we've been really careful about how we'd fundraise mm. the whole time. So there were no preference shares, 
no one had crazy control of anything. Joel and I were still in the driving seat, technically speaking, so it seemed like a reasonable thing to do. And it was really difficult because we then had to go back to our employees who you know, were a great team who were passionate about what we were doing and trying to problem solve and have a horrible conversation of, you know, we've essentially dissolved the company. Yeah. Having said that, the great thing about it is most of our team were on, you know, three month clauses. We were able to pay, you know, with like that much money in the bank was the other side to this conversation. We're like, yeah. if we do it now we can afford to pay everyone fully. And yeah. we can spend the time helping them get new jobs. And we did all of that. Yeah, it's the best of a bad situation, really, isn't it? That's It was. And, you know, there's a lot of companies, sadly, you know, they're forced into insolvency. It's very common in startups and can't afford to pay their, their teams. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Like, I definitely feel that from the employee point of view. Mm. Like, mm. of course I do. You know, my wife is an employee at a company. Like, I, I completely get her. But having been in that situation as the founder... Yeah, I, I know how easy it is for that to happen. That is the difference. Yeah. Like one investor basically saying they'll invest and then they won't. And all of a sudden you're insolvent because you can't afford yeah. to pay your teams. Uh, you know, yeah, and it, that is an unbelievable common complication of running a startup. Yeah, yeah it's some great, some great learnings in there. And thank you for being so, so open about that. I think uh, for any, there's some interesting things in there for any founders that are raising capital about the types of investors you've got. And also, a lesson there about knowing when to when to quit and i think that's that's a very it's very challenging and i'm sure there'll be people listening to this that are probably going through challenges related to covid within their startups so what what advice do you have for anyone that's in that situation at the moment that is wrestling with the decision of whether to persevere or whether to down tools what what would be your tips for those people so whether to persevere with their idea or... Yeah, I guess because there's probably a lot of people right now who are weighing up whether to keep going and fight through this difficult period or, or, or kind of call it a day. Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, this is potentially unpopular point of view, but, you know, having talked to a lot of people over this period, and look, a lot of my friends run businesses, right? It's just my network. Ultimately, we all, we all talk. Some people are genuinely looking at this opportunity, this COVID, right? Failing a business is fucking embarrassing stuff. And even though there's a lot of like failure porn in terms of like talking about like it's, it's so easy and it's so great to talk about failure, it's not. It's really, really, really hard and uncomfortable and takes a lot of emotional toll on you. An excuse like COVID doesn't come around every so often. And that sounds like a completely ridiculous thing to say, but where my friends have been so unbelievably honest with me is in saying stuff like that, which is, mm. I don't think the business was going to work. We haven't got traction. We haven't figured things out. This is how much money and risk I've got attached around it. But, you know, this has made it 10 times harder. The major difference is no one in their right mind ever would judge a single human being who wasn't able to make their business work in a pandemic. That's yeah. as simple as that. Agreed. You walk away with, you know, A, some help and support from the government. B, yeah a story that everyone has sympathy and empathy for and see lessons and learnings. So, you know, there are times where market conditions wipe out your business and that is just a sad fact. Holding on to the thing that you thought you built rather than giving yourself a mental break and thinking about if I've learned what I've learned, could I start again and start afresh? I see that as an opportunity. And this is as someone who, you know, has never successfully really been able to see a business through to the end. So I've got a good amount of experience in knowing what a successful business looks like. And, you know, mm. I would hold my hand up to say I have never run a successful business. So 
I started Heights off the back of, you know, this fundraise. You know, there are two really core things for me within starting Heights. One is to have a really meaningful purpose, something that was long term for me that I could buy into and build with passion so that when I'm knackered, I've got energy because I'm working on something I deeply care about. Secondly, you know, as capitalist as it sounds, starting with margin. Because if I yeah. don't, if I don't learn that lesson now, I never will. Absolutely, no. That's that's, that's great advice, and it it's a perfect segue into uh, talking about Heights, which is your latest venture and is a fantastic business which you set up uh, last year. So, for those that don't know much about it, can you tell us a little bit about the business and and how the idea came about? Yeah, sure. So, Heights is a brain health and mental well being company. So, our vision is to be the world's leading consumer brand in brain health and mental wellness, which sounds very odd because and the reason i love that it sounds odd is because not a single one exists in the world today yeah i love that so i like to imagine a world where there is a brand for the brain and there are limited products they're high quality we churn out media and content to help educate people we have nutritional products that help feed the brain you know we we are the company that are thriving in that space the way that we pitched this idea and space to our, our investors at the time was you know, doing the research around the industry. If you imagine above the baseline and below the baseline health, right? So our physical health, if you are below the baseline with your physical health, you go to the doctor and let's say you break a leg or you've got uh, you know, a kidney infection or whatever it is, right? You're below the baseline, you go to the doctor, it might be on the NHS, etc. That is what we call healthcare, it's technically sick care, but you know, semantics. The cost of that globally to society is currently stands around $16 trillion and is destined to grow by 2030 to about $22 trillion. Now, what I think is really fascinating, above the baseline healthcare, now that's what we now call physical wellness, that whole industry, I'm talking about Gymshark, Nike, Maxi Muscle, Lululemon, what is a good tangential example? You know, I mean, like, you know, every, mm-hmm. every activewear or sportswear or health-related company and brand you can think of is worth $1 trillion, the whole sum of it. So if you think about how every trillion dollars that goes into above the baseline physical wellness, aka people taking personal responsibility for their health and longevity, that takes away about $3 trillion of cost from sick care because it's much more expensive to manage sick care. So that is the industry that has grown and blown up in the last 10 years. Now, if you look over on the other side to the mental health market, this is where I'm really fascinated. The below the baseline mental health care market is currently worth about $10 trillion globally. So it's a big cost, but it's destined Mm. to grow to $30 trillion by 2030, outstripping physical health care. So there is a massive burden on society globally because of mental health illnesses. And that is on an exponential curve upwards faster than physical healthcare. Mm. Now, above that, in the mental well-being and mental wellness space, there's fuck all. There's calm. There's headspace. There's so two companies that are worth about a billion dollars each. There's some headsets. You know, there's some good stuff. Don't get me wrong. But, Mm. you know, there's a few billion dollars worth of value right now globally. And so you think about the space and how much work there is to do in that space and 
how to systematically think about building brands that connect with customers in an engaging way to help them relate and consider how to take control of their, of their mental well-being. There is a giant opportunity there. So that is the space Definitely. that we like to look at. The execution that really starts with nutrition for us. So the, the journey very quickly started when I got insomnia about three years ago. And I had it for about six months. I basically couldn't go to sleep. But, you know, when I could, I would go to sleep about midnight and I'd wake up at 2 a.m. every single night on wow. repeat for six months. You know, after trying therapy and sleep therapy and, you know, all sorts of, like, everything you can imagine. I ended up going to see a dietitian who recommended me three supplements, which I was surprised by. But they were DHA omega-3s, B vitamin complex and blueberry extract, which is an antioxidant. And I was kind of blown away by the simplicity of her suggestions. It didn't seem like what I thought she was going to suggest to me. But regardless, I took them. Within two weeks, I slept like a baby. Uh, My anxiety had gone away. I was really surprised. One of the things that I learned from this experience was all of those ingredients exist in nature. And Mm. ultimately, they have reams of science around how they can impact our our mental well-being. Now, in my personal case, I'd gone completely plant-based about a year and a half before this. And one of the common things we're learning in society at the moment for people that are going plant-based, vegetarian, flexitarian, whatever it is, when you cut things out your diet, you need to put them back in. doesn't matter what game changers say. It is an irresponsible message. I say this as someone who is literally one of those people. So, you know, you can only really speak from experience here. Much like everyone knows about the B12 argument, the DHA omega-3 argument is very, very important too because your brain is made of 60% fat. 90% of that fat is a compound called DHA. It is the number one building block of your entire brain. And so looking at the brain as a holistic organ, it's very simple to say, what are the four things your brain needs? It's, It's sleep, hydration, nutrition, and oxygen. If you try and look at what makes a healthy mind, we could be here all day. There's a million things that make a healthy mind, but a healthy physiological organ needs balance on those things. So if you're completely dehydrated, you're going to feel sleepy, feel like shit. You will like you, you you will make yourself sick, like fundamentally. Um, Same thing if you have a real big nutritional imbalance. And that is something that, you know, the dietitian at the time said to me, she's seeing loads more in her clinic because people don't understand that when they remove fish, which is generally where you get, DHA from now fish get it from algae so the thing is actually the most sustainable source is from algae but algae is seaweed not many people eat seaweed every day right and the other place to get it in a plant-based diet is flaxseed again you need about a kilo of that so people don't really do it so the reality is we like looked at the science of what natural nutrients go into feeding a healthy brain and there's essentially you know, a lot of different ingredients, but the point being, we like, why don't we put these together? Why don't we figure out how to put these together into a product that is like the highest quality, most bioavailable? I mean, I learned so much about supplements, just not, not yeah, coming yeah. in from the industry and being a skeptic. And one of the things we learned was, you know, about the pill, you know, most come in a shit pill, basically doesn't, you know, just all goes down in one. We work with a patented capsule manufacturer that essentially dual releases the nutrients into your gut. So we have oil on the outside and nutrients on the inside and they slow release into your gut, which means you can take it first thing in the morning without food if you want to. You can take it with food or without and it will slow release the, the nutrients into your gut. And the most important thing for that isn't necessarily the quality of the ingredients or the release mechanism. It's building a habit. So mm-hmm. most people that take supplements because it's hard to feel a difference. Most people will just 
you know, get out the habit. It's understandable. Of course they will. Mm. Our thing is like, can we find a time in the day? Can we start people with a healthy habit? And by having the pill this way and a bottle that's been completely bespoke designed and fully biodegradable out of packaging and, you know, it's been nominated for a bunch of design awards, we're very happy to say, it's been designed to sit on your bedside table. So that when you wake up, you think of heights and you think of starting your day, looking after your brain's health and cognitive potential. That daily habit for us is the platform from which you can start to build more healthy habits because mm-hmm. like our company purpose or belief, if you will, is a healthier brain leads to a happier life. Yeah. So what that really means is if you have more healthy habits than bad ones, you will ultimately be healthier and happier. But having healthy habits is hard. We are literally wired against having healthy habits for ourselves. We all know what's good for us. It doesn't mean we do it. So yeah. our mentality around heights is, you know, how can we encourage our, our audience to start, daily healthy habits and then that can be our platform to build a brand upon but if you can't get someone into the process of a a daily practice of self-love in some respect it's very hard to build a a meaningful brand and impact on that human being otherwise so that's been our sort of first product Mm -hmm. logic and we've been super lucky as you'll know with some of the people that take it and support us yeah incredible you've i mean i love i love your passion i mean it's clearly something that you genuinely believe in and you know the mission of the business is one that i completely get on board with and i can see why it got the 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 kind of the the very high profile supporters and why businesses it seems to be going really well uh, despite not being i guess when did you start the business less than a year ago so yeah yeah exactly and uh, you know it's only been the product's only been out since january and we've only had a team for the last six weeks. You know, it was all just Joel and I with a bunch of advisors until literally yeah, six weeks ago, we've hired four people in the last six weeks. So that's been interesting in itself, starting a fully remote team out, yeah, of, out, of, in, out of necessity rather than choice. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I'm keen to come on to, to the team piece. But um, yeah, it's an amazing. You clearly have created these beautiful products that are, you know, completely game changing and unique. But you've also you mentioned the marketing piece that uh, and, and the social media presence is, is genuinely engaging. And you, you have these working in masterclasses where the likes of one of my favorite people ever, Stephen Fry, has been involved in other high profile individuals. So for our listeners, can you explain a bit about what these sessions are and, and why did you decide to put them on? Yeah, totally. So I think having a startup mentality, one of the things I've, I'm really, I'm a really big believer, sadly, and it's going to be expensive and difficult, but I'm a big believer that the awareness and consideration around uh, looking after our mental well-being, you know, there's a lot of lip service. There's not a lot of personal yeah. action, right? There's people who will generally say, yes, it's important. Yes, it's important, but not follow up by actually buying not just our product, anything to look after theirs, right? And so there's a lot of work to do on education in the category, which means that I really believe that, you know, working with voices and working on telling stories is totally the approach to start to explain why this stuff is important. Prevention is always better than the cure, but it's hard to decide to do those things in advance if you haven't had a problem. So the idea with working in was during the pandemic, I saw an opportunity to say, well, if everyone's working at home, everyone's content is fucking average. Everyone's content production quality is average. That gives us as a startup an an equal opportunity chance as everyone else because everyone's filming in their living room. So now we can do that too and feel like we're as as big as uh, anyone else. So I reached out to, so, so the idea was everyone's working out at home to keep their bodies fit. So we should be working in for our brains. So workouts for your body, work in for your brain. Um, I pitched this idea 
to you know a few of our we'll like to let you know we're lucky with our customers and, and advisors so one of our customers is Stephen Fry we've got a whole bunch of very impressive scientific and well-respected doctors and wellness professionals who are our customers as well and I basically reached out to them say look every single week I want to host a one-to-one live interview with you and we're going to talk about your area of specialty essentially the idea for a work-in is each our session is three different work-ins. Each one's 15 minutes and there's a and a live with the audience. So, you know, with Stephen Fry, the three work-ins were like his thoughts on intelligence. You know, can it be learned? Where does it come from? The second one was living with mental health disorders. And then the third one was like, the sinful brain and why we, why we make sins. You know, really three, three different topics, but what's great is and we're turning them into a podcast series. So each one is a different podcast episode. Wow. So I will definitely, yeah, be tuning into that. Fascinating. Nice, nice little short, uh, short snippets. You know, I think the idea for me is there's so much to learn about the brain. The brain is such an exciting platform to work in, but ultimately, you know, people like to hear from experts. People like to hear even more from celebrities, to be honest, as in Steve, like no one can beat Stephen Fry. But, you know, we've had some really fantastic people from the head of neurosurgery at Stanford University. This week, we've got Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. The week after, we've got Dr. Daniel Arman, who's one of the most famous doctors in America. You know, these are really like prestigious people. And the reality is, like our job, if we've, if we've you know, not made a customer out of someone, but made someone con- consider their brain's health the physical organ as much as their mind we've done a good job because ultimately there's a lot a lot that's said about brands anyway that you need to kind of infiltrate someone's mindset for you know eight different times before they even start to consider so ultimately it's a long game i'm not expecting to mop up customers left right and center but being one of the first times they've really deeply thought about their relationship with their brain and whether or not they put it first and see and, and actually consider how important it is to their longevity and health if we can do that we've done a great job yeah and I, I really admire what you're doing and i think the value add and educational part of it is so important and i think particularly now in the time we find ourselves in the world that we live in it, there is a real appetite and interest in in developing these sorts of things and i think we've seen lots of startups start and more startups focusing on mental and, and physical well-being which is i'm i'm really pleased to see that and clearly you mentioned you've been hiring during lockdown so uh, We've seen from our jobs as, as headhunters, the, the best talent often wants to really work for disruptive, mission-driven businesses like yours. And I'm sure people listening will be going, right, how do I end up working with Dan? What, what do I need to do? So how are you going about building your team? And, and when you're looking for talent, what specific things are really important to you? This is a great question. I think it's worth saying that we didn't do everything right or wrong last time, but we didn't put enough emphasis on what we're looking for, what a really great candidate looks like. This time round, I mean, the fact that we've hired four people in the last six weeks actually does a disservice to how long we've been hiring in those roles. Um, they happen to have finally got through, you know, to our final stage and being given offers and, you know, would have been ideal if they were in the office and some of them have seen the office because they've come for interviews in there. But, you know, there's a, there's a famous quote, which is, you know, hire fast, fire faster. I, you know, I don't agree with it. I actually take the exact opposite approach this time. We spent so long. So our hiring process started literally before we had a product. We sat down with two behavioral psychologists and we got them to spend basically four different sessions mapping out mine and Joel's values. Our similarities, our differences, our behavioral values we have in our office in Soho, which we still pay for, but no one's in it. It's very painful. <laughs> yes, I feel your pain. <laughs> we have 
on the wall, our values, our differences, and our personality profiles there, so that anyone that was the idea was anyone that was coming to work with us would understand like this is what Joel and Dan mm-hmm. are like. This is where the company values come from. So that was the first step: was understanding our company values and understanding why they're important for us uh, in the as part of the interviewing process. So. I think, you know, and just to give you a, a clarity on them, they keep a sense of humor and humility. Love that. Pursue, yeah, so it's, it's, I think, very important. And pursue potential with passion. And I think, you know, focusing on the why of someone, like what motivates them and why, why these things are important to them will help align them in the company. So we'd written our interview questions or, or rather a list of questions that we would pull up for interview questions and how we would score them about a year and a half ago. So a year before we ever hired anyone because we want to be prepared and we want to really think through how, you know, when someone's in the process, what are non-negotiables? And so the first, the first stage that we make people do is not with Joel or I, it's with an independent freelancer that we work with who used to be our, our head of operations at Gravel. So, you know, he knows us very well. Um, it's just a values call. So if you make it through, you know, for a consideration, then you do a values call with Rob. It's half an hour. Absolutely nothing to do with your personal skills whatsoever. He scores, and then we move through to the next stage. The next stage is a it's a thirty minute test, um, basically a, like a high level skills test, depending on the role. But it's a high level skills test. Like for example, the one we're hiring at the moment is on growth, so it's mostly around how you know it's a it's a LTV to CAC consideration which for anyone that's not a wanker using acronyms that means lifetime value to the customer acquisition cost because it's a fundamental you can't do that job without that and so lots of people i totally appreciate look you know lots of people apply for these roles and we made a massive mistake that we've learned from by not putting that higher up the funnel so if you pass that then you have a half an hour call with joel or i depending on who the hiring manager is after that it's a proper test so, yeah. so basically it's one it's a one hour presentation to us so we give you okay. we give you the challenge and you come present it to us and and frankly if you pass that then you get a job offer yeah not for the faint-hearted but a good challenge <laughs> it's difficult and it's and the thing is we didn't have before the skill the half hour skills test we really messed up with that because mm. it's not fair because actually what happened was people talked an amazing game as they do yeah. and they came to the big presentation which is an hour and you know, the bit that rung true for us was someone spent 12 hours on that presentation and clearly didn't have the skills that we were looking for mm. in the role. And mm. that could have been tested earlier. And that's a huge waste of their time. It's so not yeah. fair on them. But people will always pick themselves up. And then so that was a really good lesson for us to learn. So we've refined our, our process and it's difficult. But, you know, we've been hiring for now seven roles. We've had 2,700 applications. So it's wow. not easy. Yeah, it's not easy yeah. to get through those. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Well, um, it sounds like you, you've got a, a really good process, actually. And um, I can imagine that you're not going to struggle for sort of getting talent through the door. So we're, we'll be excited to see how, how, how things progress on that front. Um, it's always a, it's a topic close to our heart. I think a really good chat to, to, to end on, though, is, you know, so pertinent with right now is, you know, really thinking through diversity and inclusion. It's so hard to get this right in the sense that if I look at the funnel and I look at the people that have applied and bear in mind, like, you know, we're not actively trying to pull in people because, you know, in this job market, great people are finding you in a different job market. Mm-hmm. We'd spend so much time sourcing, of course, I'm sure yeah. you're having personal problems with this because that's a fucking nightmare for you. Yeah. You, usually yeah. exist in, you usually exist in the other market, right? In this market, like there's so many candidates, not that many people hiring. But if I look through the list of people that are applying for these roles, 
there aren't anywhere near as many black or, you know, mm. or BAME candidates whatsoever. And then that becomes my responsibility to go and outreach and put them in the funnel because, you know, it's not about making any compromises about hiring the right person for the role. But what we've tried to do, and we were doing this, you know, a few weeks ago, having the conversation, which is, you know, do we want to set ourselves a metric, which is at the very least, we'll have seen 10 black and 10 BAME minimum candidates in this role and passed on them because they weren't right for the role, but at least we've seen them. Because if you don't do that, then, we, you know, other 2,700 odd candidates, like, I mean, most of them are white. Yeah. 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 That's how it is. Yeah. It, there is a, there is an issue. I mean, it's an issue in society in general. It's something that we've always been very vocal and passionate about. I mean, 40% of the people we placed last year came from BAME backgrounds, and but we have a job to shout even louder about this. And I think it's exactly right. We need founders to kind of really, you know, be focused on this point because ultimately more diverse talent pools, you know, you're, you're going to get better business as a result. I'm conscious of time, Dan. We're getting towards the end of the conversation. I have to, it would be more ridiculous than, more than if I did. Yes, it is a bit more than 40, but it's well worth it because this, this, this is packed full of great insights for our listeners. I have to ask you about podcasting. As a fellow podcast host, I'm a huge fan, was very inspired by uh, Secret Leaders, which is your number one podcast in the UK on the business charts, beating out Tim Ferriss. I know a lot of people will have listened and will be big fans. And so I just, I thought I'd, I'd touch upon it. One, to say thank you and keep up the great work. But I also wanted to, to just ask you who, of all the amazing entrepreneurs that you've met along the way, who who is the guest that you've interviewed who's left the biggest impression on you and, and why? Oh, it's easy. Ali Parser. Ah, amazing. Babylon. Babylon yeah, Babylon. Ali Parser from Babylon Health. You know, the reason for that is because, you know, my business is all about, you know, communicating the benefits and value and, and meaning of neuroplasticity. And ultimately, any, any entrepreneur, you know, not just entrepreneur, anyone that wants to create the life they want, you know, will understand the value of neuroplasticity. You know, the extreme version of neuroplasticity, you know, who I always look to for inspiration genuinely is someone like The Rock, you know, just some dude from Hawaii that in Definitely. my view is probably going to end up being president because he's so incredible. But Arnold Schwarzenegger so. is another great example. You know, these are people who say the future me can be anyone and therefore this is how I'm going to create the steps towards it. Ali Pasta sees the same thing around healthcare. He says, this is how healthcare is today. That's not the way it needs to be. He, by the way, you know, he wouldn't like me saying this, but like any entrepreneur, he's as full of shit as anyone else, right? As in like completely <laughs> pretending that his product is better than it is at each different time and stage. But the point is you're telling the story of the future and you're creating the world you want to live in by bringing people on board with the story. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. His blindsided, like, complete and utter faith in the, the future he wants to create will eventually, in my opinion, come true because he keeps saying it, because he raises yeah. the money and it's a huge amount of money that you need to raise to build a business like mm. that. However, if you're innovating in healthcare and trying to make sure that it's accessible and affordable to everyone on earth, you've got to believe your own bullshit because everyone else in, along the way is going to tell you it's not possible. And his Absolutely. confidence is so inspiring. And the way that he approaches it is so inspiring. I challenge anyone to listen to his episode and not come away with chills. 
Yeah, and I, I completely agree. It's, it's an amazing episode. Uh, so if you haven't listened to it, check it out straight away. We're doing, you know, our series at the moment is predominantly on the pandemic. And he was our first guest in, the, in this series with Dr. Chatterjee. And, you know, he came on the show, you know, to share what they're doing at Babylon, et cetera, et cetera, um, a day after his father passed. I mean, you know, that is uh, a great sign of someone who is there to inspire despite, you know, what's going on in his personal life. You know, it is amazing that he did that yeah. because he thinks it's important to share the mission. So that gives you a great, a great example yeah. of the, the kind of person he is as well. Yeah, definitely. No, thank you. Well, we have our last three wrap-up questions. So they'll be quick fire. This is called the 40-Minute Mentor. I have to ask Dan, do you have a, a mentor or mentors and, and what's been, how have they helped your career? So, you know, I actually don't have a mentor and I always have this conversation with my business partner, Joel. I don't have a mentor. I don't have a coach, but he, you know, quite wisely says, well, you don't, but we do have people like Michael Acton Smith that time. We've got, you know, Graham Hobson, who's the founder of Photobox, one of our investors, who's always on the end of a phone call if we need him. Nick Jenkins is another one as well. These are people who I literally, if I email them and say like, we've got this problem, can I have a call? They'll say Mm -hmm. yes. So, you know, I think it's more that I'd feel... If I asked them, would you be my mentor? They'd probably say, well, I mean, I thought yeah. that's what I'm fucking doing, mate. What do you mean? <laughs> um, yeah. It doesn't have to be official, does it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the answer is no, not officially. But of course, in reality, I really do. Yeah, good stuff. And and the next year, I am certain will be busy, exciting, stressful uh, in equal measure. But what are your personal and goals for heights in the next uh, in the next 12 months? So we want in the next 12 months, it's so difficult because, you know, the last six months have completely derailed everyone, right? And so, you know, projecting everything needs to be reprojected, which is difficult, but um, absolutely launching into America where the, the majority of the market is, that's our, that is our plan. You know, our target is to get to, like our short-term target anyway, is to have 10,000 customers of which 1,000 are absolutely fanatical maniacs about the brand that is our key target so there's no good getting to 10,000 customers without the 1,000 nutcases and that you know that 1,000 is kind of the thing that I I spend my time thinking about you know how do you create that emotional reaction around a brand from people so that that, that's the main things I'm focused on brilliant That's, that's very exciting and final question for anyone listening to this that is thinking about a career move in these strange times what final piece of advice would you leave them with so, you know, the best quotes are, you know, the ones that are already done, you know, the best time to plant a tree was yesterday, the best time to do it is today, right? So, you know, the reality is, it's never too late to start a business. Um, there is no right time. The best time to do these things is just to, is just to start and take the plunge and see what happens. You know, the, the other quote that I absolutely obsess over, again, because it really plays into the idea of neuroplasticity, is the Henry Ford one, which is whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> Love so that. Every, everything is about mindset yeah yeah and it's a, a great place to end this dan it's been a pleasure thank you so much for giving up your time and uh, sort of sharing your insights and advice you've been a great 40 minute mentor and we wish you all the very best with heights over the year ahead thank you mate i appreciate it thanks for having me cheers mate thanks a lot cheers dude I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of The 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.